The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Hillary, for reading the word of the Lord. Oh, how he loves us. Amen, brothers and sisters. Amen, amen. That's right. I got somebody talking to me. Who is that? I love that. Uh, it's, it was beautiful just to hear all of the brothers, uh, those whose uh, spouses have, are at the retreat that are here and holding down the fort, hear you all singing. Uh, and all you sisters who bared with us sounding crazy while we were singing, thank you. Amen. Uh, it is, but it's, it's good because one of the things that's always on my mind is men in the church. And you know the reason being is because I believe in my heart of hearts there is a spiritual attack against men in the church. Okay, I don't believe men trust the church. They believe that it is a church uh, where it is anti-intellectual uh, and that it is a place to where uh, you, they have no voice and position and relationship means nothing. And so they find it in other places. So I, I encourage all of us brothers to look at this day and say, you know what, we need to evangelize. We need to evangelize men in our neighborhoods, men in our workplaces, uh, that we work out with, that we play tennis, golf, whatever. Uh, we need to make Christ known and make much of him. I believe that we'll see a beautiful picture of the gospel uh, reviving our community when we see an army of brothers walking through the door Amen. and being transformed by the power of the gospel. Amen. Well, thank you all for who are visiting with us and joining us. This um, it's only 10:42. This is too much time for me. Uh oh. Thank you for joining us uh, and being with us this this morning. We have been going through the Beatitudes, and the title of this sermon series has been "I Am." And more so because we looked at what we went through this summer and we said we've been discussing what we are and who we are, whose we are. And uh, the I am is plural in its nature. And so what it is saying is that as we've been going through the Beatitudes, 
the blessedness is our identity. But it's not in which we look at the Beatitudes and see blessedness only from the standpoint of being bestowed upon. I'll get into what it means to be blessed or what you've heard Richard use and Terrence use over the last couple of weeks. Flourish um, is a state. And what we want to continue to convey over the next couple of weeks is that as Christians, this flourishing is who we are. It is not something that we obtain. It is not something that we, we simply go after. But what Jesus does is he look, if we look through the Beatitudes, He characterizes them. He characterizes what human, human flourishing looks like. And this morning we talk about it from the aspect of mercy. And you will hear me use mercy and compassion interchangeably. Because what mercy is, and we'll define it, is compassion for the need of people. Amen. But the reality of understanding who we are only comes from this notion of understanding God. But we can't end the circle there. We have to know God, know ourselves, but then also know one another or know community. And it is, it is a cycle in which we understand how we are to relate as Christians. Christians cannot operate in isolation. Christians cannot operate without giving of themselves. It is who we are created to be. And it helps us to see human flourishing through a natural response of God transforming our hearts. So when you sing, oh how he loves us, you go beyond the words... And you see a picture, if you were, an Ebenezer screenplay role of how God has been loving you over your life. When you did not know Him, He loved you. When you refused Him, He loved you. When you cursed His name, He loved you. When you shook your fist at Him, He loved you. When you slept with her, and when you slept with him, He loved you. When you tossed the bottle back a couple more times than you should, He loved you. When you were addicted to crack, He loved you. When you were addicted to painkillers and opioids, He loved you. This identity and reality of who we are to be goes far beyond trying to make ourselves or create ourselves. And so what does that mean? I have to know God in order to know myself and have to do it in community. And we live that each and every day. So thank you all for being with us. And as we, before we go and dive into God's Word, let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you, Jesus, because you're one who continues to remind us of your steadfast love and that your mercy endures forever and we continue to experience brand new mercies. And I pray, Jesus, that you hide me beneath your cross. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, Lord, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, all God's people said. So as I was going through this passage, I was absolutely struck, just struck by the reality of mercy and compassion or compassion and how it affirms inherent dignity in humanity and that not only in humanity but our neighbors and I'll use that word neighbors because as I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks and I've, I haven't preached in a long time so pray for me 
<laughs> but I've been doing a lot of reading and a lot of thinking. A lot of reading and a lot of thinking. And I begin to think about theology of neighboring and how what the Bible says about neighboring and being in relationship in the context of one another and looking at this in, in, in relation to the Beatitudes. But then I also heard about the uh, lynching museum. And in the middle of that, I, I read about it and I watched videos. I have yet to go on and yet to go. And the lynching memorial was actually in Montgomery, Alabama. And what it is is a site that tells the untold stories that Brian Stevenson starts by this, uh, this concept of truth-telling, of, of the lynchings that have happened in America. About 4,000 lynchings are actually in this place where you see these steel or iron um, sh square-shaped uh, objects suspended in the air. And many of them that are suspended in the air are actually listed with names of individuals who've been lynched. And I was found myself deeply saddened. And I felt a weight. Because on one end, I asked myself, could that have been one of my relatives? But then also, I wrestled internally because I looked at it from the aspect of people who we don't even know that are not of the 4,000, that are unknown. And I felt a level of compassion, deep compassion, deep mercy. And I, I tried to hide my emotions because I think that I've been taught and trained, and if you know ethics from a hood standpoint, you don't, you're not supposed to feel pain. If you know it from a man, manly standpoint, brothers, you're not supposed to show any mercy. And so you want to immediately put it away because it's not so, something you're supposed to feel. It's not something you're supposed to embrace. But here's the issue. You cannot walk through that place without feeling the overwhelming amount of pain, suffering, misery, distress. Nor can you even reckon with the question of, does my worst enemy deserve such cruelty? The reason being is because if we were to look at society as a memorial, if we were to walk through the distress, the pain, the misery, the trauma, the depression, the stress of our lives and what we see around us with our neighbors, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we immediately try to insulate ourselves and our family from it? Do we do it in our education system by not telling the full story? Do we do it by changing the channel of what we see, of what we may disagree with politically because we see different things and people and we think there's an agenda? Compassion transcends political, it transcends any type of affiliation ethnically, it transcends cultural affiliations, it transcends all affiliations in order to see humanity, the indignant, the inherent dignity of humanity. That is what our passage helps us with this morning. 
As Christians, it helps us it helps us deal with this idea that we cannot look at the homeless, nor can we look at a single mother in our congregation, nor can we look at anyone else with doing doing racial tension and social economic tension, and even those that we know in our own body and in community that are struggling with marriage, we can't look at them and just ignore their struggle and their pain. This calls us out of that. It says because you've received mercy, then you ought to show the same level of mercy. So what I want us to see is that the big idea, if you were to hang your hat on anything this morning, what I'm saying is we're called to be aware to the despair in our community. We're called to be aware of the despair in the neighbors, people that are sitting next to you, in our own lives, in our, in our, own, uh, in our own families even. We're called to be aware so that we may show compassion. It is as simple as that. And I want to show us in three ways. Compassion helps us to affirm the inherent dignity of our neighbors. Compassion empowers us to embrace the pain of our neighbors. And compassion is what we experience through new mercies. If you were to follow me through the first point, right before we get to it, I want you to know that there's a difference between mercy and grace. And when you look at the difference between mercy and grace, I want you to understand that mercy is something, as scholars would say, it is about an action that is a generous action that delivers someone from need or bondage. There could be the bondage of guilt or deliverance in the sense of healing or giving. Also, another idea in which we can look at mercy is compassion for people in need. It deals with the distress, it deals with the misery, it deals with the pain, the trauma, as a, which is a result of sin. Whereas grace deals with partnering, 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 part, P-A-R-D-O-N. <laughs> From, from guilt and shame of sin. So when we look at the first point, how, how is compassion helping us to affirm the inherent dignity of our neighbor? Well, first of all, we, as you heard Richard mention this a, a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about and how we've looked at this in an ethical way. It helps us interpret how we got to go through life. But some of us may not understand ethics from a Christian principle, Christian standpoint, or understand how it relates to theology. But ethics is equivalent to theology. Theology actually answers the question, uh, answers the ethical questions that go on in our minds. So when we ask ourselves, how are we supposed to look at refugee issues with compassion, then we build a theological grid that helps us understand that. This is where we understand mercy coming into the, in, in, in the way when we look at the TV screen or when we read things, we interpret through a grid theologically that gives us answers to our ethical questions. Does that make sense? And so, when we look at what this means, we have to say, uh, for ourselves, ethics should actually help us live in obedience to God. Right? Christian ethics should help us live in Christian obedience to God. Why are you saying this, Mike? Well, it's because when he said, when Jesus says, blessed are 
are. If you stop there and you look at the state in which we are trying to show you that if we were to say flourishing or if we were to connect this all the way to Psalm 1 and you were to see that this blessedness is not one that again is something that is bestowed upon you, but it is a state of your human life. Therefore, I actually believe that you can be poor and flourish. There is a gospel that says, no, 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 no. You need to have X, Y, and Z in your bank account in order to flourish or to be blessed. I actually believe that you can be happy living in a two-family flat with 15 people eating fried bologna sandwiches on white bread and sub sandwiches on white bread and still flourish. I'm not talking about myself. I'm just... I don't, don't have anything to do with, 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 with where I was at one point in time. But I actually believe it. Why? Because the happiness or the flourishing or the fortunate ones or the privilege comes because of who we know. It is directly connected to that. Therefore, suffering through flourishing actually allows us in areas of sanctification to be built up as Christians and transformed over time that we will look more like Christ in our state and not trying to look for another state to be in. Does that make sense? So I don't need that new Tesla in order to be blessed. I don't need filet mignon to be blessed. I don't need that salmon, amen, Willie, to be blessed. But what I need is Jesus. And so when we go this morning, we then understand that demonstrating this level of compassion actually dictates the way in which we see what other people deserve. We think that people ought to deserve something at times because that is the way our society is set up. But Compassion, mercy says that you'll get what you don't deserve. And so then it's not dictated upon anything that is merit-based. It's not dictated upon anything that you make or you look like. And so then, what does this mean? That even when we give, because mercy, now we move from blessed are, blessed are, the bless our, now we're looking at merciful. Mercy in the Old Testament and to Israel actually could be practiced by almsgiving or being practiced by sacrificial worship. You don't believe me. I understand. You don't believe me. But when you look at, when you look throughout the Bible, when you look throughout the book of Matthew, just look throughout the book of Matthew, you can go, go with me to Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10. The Bible says this, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physi- of a physician, but those who are sick, 
13, go and learn what is what this means. What does he say? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What, what does this have to do with anything? Well, if I were just to boil this down and allow this to illustrate our big idea of verse 1, that it affirms the inherent dignity of humanity, what is Jesus doing? He's breaking proper protocol and sitting with tax collectors after he's already called the tax collector to come follow him. What's naturally happening is, hey, we're going to kick it. We're going to hang out at the house and I'm going to be hospitable to people that in ritual law says that I'm not supposed to be around. But what Jesus does is, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice because essentially he points back to Hosea 6 verse 6 where Israel had the issue of actually giving sacrifices, doing everything ritually. Let me make this plain in order for us to understand in the South, going to church, giving to philanthropy, giving, philanthropy, for, giving, giving to uh, ministries, philanthropy, yeah, I know what I'm saying, giving to ministries, <laughs> you know, Making sure that I'm saying, I've been to my grandmother church. Uh, be, being able to check the boxes. Serving in various different parachurch ministries. All of those different things. Saying that I've had my devotional time. And I love the social media picture of today of showing whatever Bible verses or being with the coffee and the pen next to it saying that I've had time with Jesus today. <laughs> It goes beyond the rituals that we create, and he says, I desire mercy because he sees humanity. Yeah. It's the same issue when Jesus and the disciples are walking in their hungry and they take a piece of the bread. He says the same exact, same exact quote after the Pharisee says, they are, in, they are not supposed to be working or doing anything on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What is it in our lives, in our hearts? in our minds that we do ritually. That we feel as if, God, I'm giving you everything. Why can I not have a break? God, I'm trying to give myself. I'm serving in these different areas. I'm I'm a teacher in the urban community. I'm I'm, I'm in ministry and I I do this. Even when I'm at at, at work, I make sure that I have the Bible verse on my screensaver so when I go up and get a cup of coffee, people know that I know you, Jesus. I'm sacrificing, sacrificing in all of these different areas of my life. And Jesus is saying, but when you walk past the person that is broken and Hurting, do you have mercy? Or are you busy? Too busy to understand that ways in which you perpetuate not seeing the inherent dignity of humanity is by oppressing them by ways in which you ignore them every day. You, you still don't make sense to us. So I'm gonna make it I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it plain. There are so many of us in this congregation right now that are going through things. And we ignore them. There are so many issues. There are so many pains. There are so many things. Some of y'all do community together. You know. And we don't pay attention to them. There was so much in the media that, that, that just challenges us as a church. And what we do is we ignore them and we don't even ask questions in trying to build relationship to understand them. 
what I believe that Jesus is teaching us when He reclines with the tax collectors and the sinners. I believe He shows us that unity doesn't separate us. Sympathy brings us together. It starts with the process of understanding the truth. And then it ends with knowing that everybody is broken. Sympathy binds us. Truth makes us face the facts. And the reality is that we're all broken. Does that make sense? So then in our next point, when we say compassion empowers us to embrace the, the, uh, to embrace the pain of our neighbor, what am I saying? What are we saying? What does the passage say to us? What the passage says to us then is that if we do three things, if you just write these three things and then listen to me blabble the next couple of minutes, then you, I think you may be fine. But if you just listen, if you just pay attention, and if you just ask questions, I think our community may be a different place. I think the radicalness that we desire in intentional relationship that's our core value, that it will go beyond us coming into this space and doing time together only for a moment. And what it will deal with is real issues. And what am I saying? The reason I say this is because when my mother passed away, 2000, October 2009, the 21st of this month, when she passed away, it, it actually shook the way I went into hospitals. I seen my grandmother pass away from cancer, but it really didn't do anything to me. It, 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 and, and so, you know, never, just in case I say mama, I'm not talking about my mother, I'm talking about my grandmother. So I kind of go in between mama and grandmama. They just don't even pay attention to that. But mama, when she passed away, my mother was weeping so hard, I didn't understand her pain. I, I really didn't. She would be crying at night. I could sleep, but she couldn't. She was in and back and forth out of the house, in and out of the house, back and forth out of the hospital, seeing my mama. And then I, I just didn't understand what was going on. But until she was laying dead in the emergency room, and I was able to hold her hand and it just gone cold. And I said the deepest prayer that I can ever say in my life, hoping that God would do something miraculous just for your little me. It changed the way that I enter into a hospital now. Because now I feel the pain, the misery, the suffering. Because I realized it for myself. When we don't realize our pain, nor do we deal with our own pain, our own suffering, the things that have been traumatizing to our lives. When we suppress them, listen to me. When we suppress them, we can't see the pain of our neighbors. Because we haven't even dealt with us. So as soon as we enter in any hospital, we enter in any pain, what happens is we run away because it reminds us of what we haven't dealt with. Are y'all hearing me this morning? 
And so what I am saying is we embrace God empowers us through compassion to embrace the pain of our neighbors by realizing our own pain and asking ourselves, have I dealt with it? Have I received mercy? Have I looked at my own life? Have I reflected on it? And then after which, you can see that the pain that your brothers and sisters are going through, you're no longer insulated by how you try to protect yourself by certain mechanisms. By, by the mechanisms in which you go, you go play golf. Or, or, you, or you, go, you go to the gun range. Or what you're doing is you, you play video games all day long, not thinking about what you've been through. Or you, you smoke or you drink. You find girls. You do all of these different things because you don't want to embrace the pain. And you've insulated yourself. But when you haven't insulated yourself and you live in an incarnational way, you know what begins to happen? Is that we take on the same disposition Jesus takes on in Hebrews 4.15 where He is the high priest that's able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. No, we can't sympathize with everyone's weakness. But what we do is, we consider other people higher than ourselves. Our neighbors no longer become invisible, but their pain becomes very much visible. Isn't it painful to see the pain around you? Isn't it good to walk outside without your prescription glasses or wearing sunglasses? To ignore everything around us? Isn't it good to watch your favorite television uh, media outlet that suggests that you should be on certain political sphere? Isn't it good to say that I'm going to watch one outlet, whether it's CNN, Fox News, CNBC, whoever it is? Isn't it good to watch that and it affirm everything to insulate yourself from the pains around you? Are y'all tracking with me? And so what I'm saying is that even when it comes to understanding that flourishing happens through suffering, it doesn't mean that we ignore the suffering. It means we engage, we embrace, we listen, we ask questions, we pay attention. How, how does this apply when I'm in the school, Mike, and I see kids acting up? What it means is you see pastor acting up and you see what's going on at home. I would, I, my, my son teaches me this all the time because when he tells me no or when he throws a fit the first thing I want to tell him because this is how I was trained boy who do you think you're talking to? right? Or, we've been making this joke lately but it's like when he falls it's like you tell everybody don't look at him, he okay to ignore the pain but when you look at him crying, or when you ask him what happened at school today, and he tells you that his friend pushed him, or that someone didn't play with him, now I'm entering into pain. Now I'm entering into suffering. Even for a toddler, there are some of us who can drive around our city and ignore the pain. But if I were to encourage you, listen to the pain. When you drive down Poplar, ask questions about the pain when you're driving down summer. Pay attention to the pain when you're going down vans. Even when you're in school, 
Don't ignore it. Because it's not the child. It's the trauma. Lord, have mercy. Lord, help us to have compassion. We have argued over what is it, what is it, is it justice or is it social justice? Is it biblical justice? I don't care what it is. You can call it whatever you want. But the reality is, we have to acknowledge pain. We have to embrace it. And we experience this by actually stewarding it in the authority that we have. And so what I mean by this is that we're actually, we actually have the, the opportunity to steward our compassion by the relationships we begin to build. If we ask, here's one of the things, this is one of the things I didn't want to say, but I'm going to say it. If we ask to have multi-ethnic friendships, we ask to have multi-class friendships, multi-generational friendships, are we building them with our children and our lives? Are 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 we coming into a place that we only want to experience it for a moment? Does it actually bring something that we embrace as a full person? Does that make sense? So the last point is this. We experience it. The Bible tells us that we have brand new mercies. It reminds us that these mercies are new every single day. And the mercies that are new actually helps us to know that they never cease. This was a lamentation, 3, 22 to 23. Sorry, sometimes I forget to put it up there. Steve Creasy is always asking me to put my scriptures up there, but it just pops up in my mind sometimes, Steve. But these mercies do not end. Why is that important? Because when you're in community group, you actually have the opportunity to practice mercy. I'm making it home first. The Bible says in Colossians 12, Colossians 3, 3 verse 12, that we have to put on something. It says, put on, what, I think y'all can read it now because I may have it up there. Put on what? on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. How do we put on compassionate hearts? That's one question that we have to deal with this morning. I don't know how you can put on compassionate heart. I was thinking through it, but I want you to ask yourself the question as you go into work this week, how can I put on a compassionate heart? When your son and daughter come home from school and they're frustrated and they're thinking through things and they don't know how to to process the friendships and the relationships that they have, how can you put on a compassionate heart? When you see a homeless person and you see them asking for something, how can you put on a compassionate heart? When you see a single mother struggling with her groceries at the store, how can you put on a compassionate heart? This is the question that we deal with because practically we're supposed to practice this each and every day of our lives. Sometimes we look at the spiritual gifts and we say, this is not godliness that we have to practice. This is actually something that we practice because it helps us going back to the beginning to think and see the world through a theological grid to answer all ethical questions. So, if we're called to be aware and we're putting on compassionate hearts. There's one area where I feel like 
or a story where I believe actually shows us this. It was an Iranian mother who dreamed about the revenge of her killer, the son, the, the killer of her son. And when I read the story, you know what stood out to me is that every day she longed for for revenge as he stayed in prison. She thought he should not have life because her son did not have life. And so in their culture, what happened was she was able to participate in the execution. And the day came to where they put him on a noose. And he was standing on a chair. And as he was standing on the chair, she was supposed to walk up and kick the chair to execute him. For years she had been dreaming about this. But when the moment came, she showed mercy and compassion. Instead of kicking the chair, she walked past the chair to pardon him for the sins that he committed towards her. Many of you may not realize what I am pointing to, but we were hanging on a chair. And Jesus had every right to come and kick it from under us. But in his own holiness, mercy, and grace, he seen that Genesis 1 26-28 playing out and then the promise of Genesis 3 and 15 that he will redeem his people being the very thing that allowed him to walk past not just walk past the chair but take us off of the chair put himself onto the chair wrap the noose around his neck and hang himself by jumping off of the chair it's called the cross and the way that he pardoned our sins was to remind us of the inherent dignity that we have as children of the living God and able to not ignore the pains of the cross and to experience while at the same time brand new mercies the way he's allowed us to have each and every day of our lives. Boy, y'all can come, but the way that I want to end this sermon is a prayer of confession. And the prayer of confession should be for all of us to read uh, on the screen behind me. Now, I want us to read this prayer of confession corporately. And then we'll take a moment, and I want you to have an individual time of confession. And I will break that by reminding you with a scripture of pardon. Please read with me. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. But what we have done.
time to have individual prayer of confession by closing your eyes.